0: Hi, everyone. Just jumping in before we begin this episode to let you know that we have launched our annual uh, holiday giving drive. We are hoping to raise $25,000 by December 31st. So if you want to support this podcast and the Institute and all the work that we do um, educating people in the United States and around the world, please make a donation on our website. There will be a link in the show notes, or you can just go to youngchicago.org. Slash give. Um, and we received a matching grant for $7,000. So for the first uh, $7,000 we received, those donations will be matched. So you can double your gift if you participate. Uh, thank you so much for your support. So I just want to preface this episode saying that we have a trigger warning for sexual abuse. About 50 ish minutes in, there will be a tone that sounds like this. That will be your signal if you would like to fast forward about four and a half minutes. There's another tone at the end of it, sort of bookending, but those are your signals. And with that, enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Jungian Ever After, a podcast about fairy tales through the lens of Jungian analysis. I am your host, Raisa, and joining me, as always, is my co host and Jungian analyst, Dr. Adina Davidson. Hey, Raisa. Hey, Adina. So I think you and I are both very excited for this episode because it gets into one of our favorite characters. Honestly, from a story that's not like a huge story. I feel like it's it's one people know about, but it only really got popularized because of this show we watched called Once Upon a Time, which I think I get varying reactions to watching Once Upon a Time. People are like, "Oh, that's not a great show." And other people that are also really into it. But I think as fairy tale nerds, it's really fun for us because they go through just so many different worlds.
1: First of all, I loved the show because I really connected to the characters and particularly the Stiltson character who followed us through so many of the storylines. I also think it's what kind of brought you and I together around this shared fairy tale passion. It was that we would get together every week and watch Once Upon a Time. And then when you moved out of Cleveland into Philadelphia. I don't remember the name of the app, but there was Rabbit, right? Rabbit?
0: Oh gosh, yeah, that was ages ago. Don't Google that, friends. (laughs) It comes up with different things now, but it it used to be this screen-sharing app where you could watch things together. Now there's much more sensibly named things like Watch Together, (laughs) which (laughs) is now a way to watch things. If you both have... The application, like Netflix, HBO Max, etc. But we didn't finish Once Upon a Time, but we got through a lot of it. And Rumpelstiltskin was this very interesting character who is part of so many stories as this binding glue he was. Obviously, his, his own character who makes a deal with this woman for her firstborn. He is also the Beast from Beauty and the Beast, which was very interesting. And that was kind of a recurring thing of him actually trying to redeem himself over the course of the show because he he does fall in love with Belle. But also he's kind of a recovering addict in many ways. Part of that trying to redeem himself is he loves magic and uses magic so much and doesn't really know how to do anything without it. They start him off as this very sympathetic character. He's inscripted to fight in this war, but because he's not really a fighter, he cripples himself to get out of fighting.
1: But I think the interesting thing is he embodies the the extremes of capacity for evil and this possibility for decency. Mm -hmm. And you just never know where he's going to fall out. Is he going to this time lean into his decent, kind impulse? Or is he going to return to, as you say, the addiction of magic and power and self-aggrandizement and be evil? It's fascinating and sometimes stomach-turning to watch (laughs) And I think that we'll see some of that in the Grim Fairy Tale. Not exactly, but some of it. You know, he's not ever purely good or purely evil, including in the Grim Fairy Tale. And one thing that's very important is
0: all the deals he makes, which people, you almost have to laugh. How is everyone still making deals with this guy? They know they're going to be unhappy at the end, but they do technically get what they want, right? The thing that they're asking for, he does get it to them. It's just that you got to read the fine print.
1: (laughs) And he always warns them that there will be a cost. Yeah, incidentally,
0: his kind of catchphrase is magic always comes with a price. And yet he uses it
1: himself willy nilly. And doesn't ever seem to count the price. Yeah.
0: I mean, this is a thing with trickster characters is this arrogance and narcissism that they think their own rules don't really apply to them. And so it's often how they get beat is someone being them at their own deal making or turning something against them, finding a way to do that. Should we dive into it? I feel like we could talk about Rumpelstiltskin from Once Upon a Time Forever, just because there's so many seasons and he ties it all together.
1: And we don't know if our listeners have actually watched that, so I think we should probably go to the Grimm version of Rumpelstiltskin, and I'll turn it over to you to read the story. All right. Dive right in. Rumpelstiltskin, from Household Tales
0: by Brothers Grimm. Once there was a miller who was poor, but who had a beautiful daughter. Now it happened that he had to go and speak to the king, and in order to make himself appear important, he said to him, I have a daughter who can spin straw into gold. The king said to the miller, that is an art which pleases me well, if your daughter is as clever as you say. Bring her tomorrow to my palace, and I will try what she can do. And when the girl was brought to him, he took her into a room which was quite full of straw, gave her a spinning wheel and a reel, and said, Now set to work, and if by tomorrow morning early you have not spun this straw into gold during the night, you must die. Thereupon he himself locked up the room and left her in it alone. So there sat the poor Miller's daughter, and for the life of her could not tell what to do. She had no idea how straw could be spun into gold, and she grew more and more miserable, until at last she began to weep. But all at once the door opened, and in came a little man and said, "'Good evening, Mistress Miller. Why are you crying so?' "'Alas,' answered the girl, I have to spin straw into gold, and I do not know how to do it. What will you give me, said the mannequin, if I do it for you? (laughs) My necklace, said the girl. The little man took the necklace, seated himself in front of the wheel, and whir, 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 three turns, and the reel was full. Then he put on another, and whir, 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 three times round, and the second was full too. And so it went on until the morning, when all the straw was spun, and all the reels were full of gold. By daybreak, the king was already there, and when he saw the gold, he was astonished and delighted, but his heart became only more greedy. He had the miller's daughter taken into another room full of straw, which was much larger, and commanded her to spin that also in one night, if she valued her life. The girl knew not how to help herself, and was crying— When the door again opened, and the little man appeared and said, "'What will you give me if I spin that straw into gold for you, dearie?' (laughs) "'The ring on my finger,' answered the girl. The little man took the ring, again began to turn the wheel, and by morning had spun all the straw into glittering gold. The king rejoiced beyond measure at the sight, but still he had not gold enough.' and he had the miller's daughter taken into a still larger room full of straw and said, You must spin this too in the course of this night, but if you succeed, you shall be my wife. Even if she be a miller's daughter, thought he, I could not find a richer wife in the whole world. When the girl was alone, the manikin came again for the third time and said, "'What will you give me if I spin the straw for you this time also?' "'I have nothing left that I could give,' answered the girl. "'Then promise me, if you should become queen, your first child.'" (laughs) (laughs) "'Who knows whether that will ever happen,' thought the miller's daughter. "'And, not knowing how else to help herself in this strait, "'she promised the mannequin what he wanted,' and for that he once more spanned the straw into gold. And when the king came in the morning and found all as he had wished, he took her in marriage, and the pretty miller's daughter became a queen. A year after, she had a beautiful child, and she never gave a thought to the mannequin. But suddenly he came into her room and said, Now give me what you promised. The queen was horror-struck and offered the mannequin all the riches of the kingdom if he would leave her the child. But the mannequin said, No. Something that is living is dearer to me than all the treasures in the world. Then the queen began to weep and cry so that the mannequin pitied her. I will give you three days' time, said he, if by that time you find out my name, then you shall keep your child. <laughs> so the queen thought the whole night of all the names that she had ever heard, and she sent a messenger over the country to inquire far and wide for any other names that there might be. When the manikin came the next day, she began with Caspar, Melchior, Balthazar, and all the names she knew one after another. But to every one, the little man said, That is not my name. On the second day, she had inquiries made in the neighborhood as to the names of the people there, and she repeated to the mannequin the most uncommon and curious. Perhaps your name is Shortribs, or Sheepshanks, or Laceleg. But he always answered, that is not my name. On the third day, the messenger came back again and said, I have not been able to find a single new name. But as I came to a high mountain at the end of the forest, where the fox and the hare bid each other good night, there I saw a little house, and before the house a fire was burning, and round about the fire quite a ridiculous little man was jumping. He hopped upon one leg and shouted, "'Today I bake, tomorrow brew, the next I'll have the young queen's child!' Ha! Glad am I that no one knew that Stiltskin I am styled. You may think how glad the queen was when she heard the name, and when soon afterwards the little man came in and asked, Now, Mistress Queen, what is my name? At first she said, Is your name Conrad? No. Is your name Harry? No. Perhaps your name is Rumpelstiltskin. The devil has told you that. The devil has told you that, cried the little man. And in his anger, he plunged his right foot so deep into the earth that his whole leg went in. And then in rage, he pulled at his left leg so hard with both
1: hands that he tore himself in two. So... I know Reza just read the whole story, but I think it would be really helpful for us to go over it piece by piece in order to analyze it. We start the story with a poor miller who has a beautiful daughter. And the miller wants to make himself look important by telling the king that his daughter can spin straw into gold. So once again, just like our first story that we looked at, Rapunzel, we see this theme of a narcissistic parent who sacrifices, in this case, his child to meet his own needs. And we'll see that there are generational fallouts from that choice because the child of a narcissistic parent is damaged by that relationship. And not obviously not just in fairy tales, but in ordinary human life. When children grow up with a narcissistic parent, that does damage child may struggle to grow into a whole person and will very likely have unmet dependency needs that they may try to have other people meet.
0: So could you explain that a bit more for me? What do you mean by dependency needs?
1: So young children, by definition, are dependent. They have to rely on their parents really for everything, right? I think that One of the most famous and lovely ways of describing it is a Freudian analyst, Winnicott, who says, there is no such thing as a baby. You can only have a baby, and he said a mother, but a baby and a parent. Mm -hmm. Because just a baby doesn't exist for very long. For humans, anyway. (laughs) For humans. That's exactly right. So we have these tremendous needs for not just food and warmth, But really, for love and for emotional containment. And then again, an example of the intensity of those early needs comes from Romania, actually. After the communist government fell in Romania, and it was one of the most autocratic and closed societies in Europe, after the communist government fell, social workers and psychologists and all kinds of people went into the Romanian orphanages. And what they found there was horrifying. What they found were that there were 20 babies for each adult caretaker. And all of those babies, I mean, it wasn't that the caretakers weren't doing the best they could. All of those babies were warm and fed and basically clean. But none of them had any attention paid to them. So when the caretakers would feed them, they would prop the bottle and leave the baby and go to the next one. Because with 20 babies to take care of, you were constantly you know, changing a diaper, propping a bottle, and then moving to the next one, and moving to the next one, and moving to the next one. And what they found was a very high proportion of those babies actually died before their first birthday, not of starvation, not of exposure not of disease, but of not being loved. And another extremely high proportion of them had profound cognitive disability. And almost all of them had what we would now call reactive attachment disorder. They had very, very damaged ability to form relationships. But somewhere between a third and a half of them simply died. And at that, so that's what I, when I talk about dependency needs, I'm not kidding. Human beings are born with enormous dependency needs. And when we have a narcissistic parent, that parent may not prop the bottle and move on to the next child, but they're not attending to the child. They're not seeing the child as a human being separate from themselves. And so that they're not meeting that need for, you know, babies and young children need to be the sun and the moon and the stars for somebody. Uh And a narcissistic parent can't give them that. And so they're left with that need, even into adulthood. It's
0: interesting. This actually came up in discussion between Rachel and I, and she didn't label it as dependency needs, so I didn't make that correlation until now. But she was telling me how it really brought her out of the fiction for this very popular book that a lot of people enjoyed called Gideon the Ninth, which another reason she, she only got partway through was because it's a very long book. But <laughs> at the beginning of the story, The way that she read it, and maybe it is described this way, but she read it as this child ended up being raised effectively by skeletons. Mm -hmm. And that just totally brought her out of the fiction because of these dependency needs you're talking about. There's no way this could be a functioning human as our main character if that's the way it was. My unintentional workaround was, oh, I perceived it more as, there were a lot of skeletal servants around, but it was the necromantic, nun cult like members that were doing the actual child-rearing, raising part. So maybe she has the emotional damage, but still had a human holding her as a baby, mm. etc.
1: And I actually think that that's an interesting point because, yes, we're born with these enormous dependency needs, but also human beings are remarkably resilient and remarkably flexible. And if we even have an aunt or a grandparent or a close neighbor who holds us and hugs us and loves us, children often grow up, you know, okay. Yeah, they have problems, but not devastated. We can take really small bits of love And attention, and have that be sort of enough. But again, even when we do that, when we have these more normal, unmet dependency needs, there's still like this hole in us where those dependency needs are. And even as adults, we're gonna tend to try to find somebody to give us that love, that unconditional positive regard, that validation all of that, you are amazingness. We're going to try to get another adult to meet those needs. And the bigger those holes are in this, the more problematic that becomes. Because when we try to get another adult to meet our dependency needs, we have to, in a way, become childlike. We have to turn over our agency to that other person. We have to turn over the power over our own lives to the other person. That's the Rumpelstiltskin-esque bargain that we're making, right? Mm. Oh, you will take care of me and love me. And in exchange, I will let you make all of the decisions and have all of the power. Essentially, we're allowing the other person to become our parent. or putting them in that position. That's a big burden on the other person the person who we're partnering with in this dance. And it keeps us from growing up. And again, the bigger those holes are, everybody does it to some extent, and there's certain areas that we don't grow up. So for example, Reza, and you're in my relationship, you are the parent when it comes to technology. (laughs) I am definitely the child, and I have turned over all of my agency around how... All of the technical stuff around this podcast works over to you. And you meet those dependency needs perfectly. (laughs) We're working on it, though. We'll get there. We are. And that's not such a huge problem because it's a pretty limited area of my life that I don't understand how to use the technology for.
0: I think places where it has been a problem is in the classroom, where there's this technology gap between students and their teachers. And so this person that they're supposed to respect and learn from kind of embarrasses themselves in certain situations because they can't adapt to new technology. And the kids are supposed to still respect and learn this subject from them. Now, of course, they're not teaching technology, but in many cases, they're having to adapt to new technology. And sometimes out of willfully not embracing it because of not wanting to change or sometimes just it not being their forte because they didn't grow up with it, you, you can end up with a you know, teacher
1: asking a kid in the class to help get the projector running. <laughs> and speaking as somebody who had to very abruptly move to online teaching just about two years ago, there was no instruction either. They mm-hmm. are like, oh, here's a couple YouTube videos. Watch these and go teach. And I, y- yeah, anyway, <laughs>
0: bringing <laughs> us back
1: to Rumpelstiltskin. So we have this narcissistic father who has this daughter. And the narcissistic father wants to make, in the way that narcissists tend to want to do, wants to make himself look more important than he has the capacity to be. And so he tells the king, My daughter can spin straw into gold. The king is very excited by this supposed gold spinning talent and says, Well, bring me your daughter. The king brings the girl to a room full of straw and says, Spin it into gold by morning or I will kill you. Here again, we see a familiar theme of a seemingly impossible task. The seemingly impossible task is throughout mythology, throughout fairy tales. I think we see it over and over again because it's such a powerful symbol for how it feels to leave the protection of childhood and enter into an adulthood. It feels absolutely insane that we will be able to take care of our own lives feels like somebody saying, well, yeah, go ahead. Just just start spinning that straw into gold, honey. And, And an example that I think of, and this was me and my husband, and I think we were probably in our late 40s, early 50s, and we're lying in bed together one morning. And my husband says to me, you know, every day I feel like I'm making up this adulthood thing. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who said it was a good idea to leave me in charge of my life, but I, you know, and I'm like, yeah, me too. And, and we were both sort of shocked to hear each other have this experience of even after, I mean, our children were grown by that point. We, we bought a house, we'd held jobs, we'd raised children. We, you know, even after all of that, it still felt so tentative and perilous to be in charge of our own lives. And so I think we see this impossible task over and over again, because we all sort of face it every single day.
0: When there's certain things that you just don't get walked through, it's just, yeah, you're going to have to do this eventually. I mean, think of the first time you have to do your taxes. Right. I didn't take a class on how to do my taxes. And the programming out there is Awful. At least the free stuff is only good if you have a really easy W 2 okay, here we're done. It's a whole thing that I could talk about. Our taxes don't need to be that complicated, but they often are. And it's really frustrating. And maybe you take a class or you start off by having someone do it for you and you watch so that eventually you can do it yourself. But there's so many things I think that my generation. We've made a joke out of it that adulting as a verb, <laughs> adulting, is hard. And in part, I think, because certain aspects that we were told were going to set us up for success didn't.
1: Right. right. Like going to college didn't automatically lead to a good, stable, secure job with benefits in a retirement package. Right. And sometimes
0: it meant, in fact, that you were well behind because you were... Many thousands or hundreds of thousands, depending on where you went, of dollars in debt, and so you're starting from negative <laughs> and trying to work your way up. And yeah, we we have not as many houses, not as many other things. Living with our parents longer, there's just not a great guide. In part because the world is constantly changing, so. It, means a different thing to be an adult in this age than it did to be an adult in our parents or our grandparents.
1: I think that's right. And I think that that experience of looking into the next day and going, well, how the hell am I supposed to do this completely impossible task is a fundamentally human experience. Yeah. Which again, I think is why we keep seeing it in our stories
0: and to bring us back to the stories a bit here we've got both Rapunzel's parents and is she named she is not named our main character in the Rumpelstiltskin story or our female lead I suppose (laughs) who has this impossible task forced upon her because of her father's narcissism Kind of different situations. Rapunzel is put in this tower where she's isolated, but kind of content. She's, I don't know, happy-ish. She just doesn't know the outside world, but her needs are met. She's just in isolation, and it's not until this prince comes along and hears her singing and goes up there and kind of introduces her to outside world that she realizes what she's missing. With this girl, presumably she was maybe content before, had a fine life. And now, because of what I would think of as kind of a stupid mistake of her father, she's
1: had her life threatened. (laughs) So what I would say is that Rapunzel is in sort of a dissociative trance. Hmm. You know, she's in one of those states where you're just numb. Whereas I actually think the Miller's daughter perhaps had some good parenting somewhere along the line because she is connected to her own experience and she knows that she is in terrible danger. So she looks around, she realizes, well, I have absolutely no idea how to spin straw into gold. And she starts to cry, which is a very reasonable response. And it's at this well, I just actually, I just want to say that I would hold the father much more culpable than you do. I don't think it was just a mistake. <laughs> I think he he didn't care about his daughter's well-being mm. enough to be careful of her. He cared so much about his own looking important that he was really careless of his child's
0: safety. I suppose i feel there's not enough detail in the story there to really know one way or the other. Because I can imagine a scenario where he's saying this to inflate, thinking nothing will come of it.
1: And then it happens and
0: he's like, oh,
1: oops. Right, but we don't ever hear him say, oh, oops, I made a mistake. I didn't tell you the truth. Take me instead. Right. It's not the main part of the story. So I suppose you could interpret that
0: one way or another, but... Much like uh, Rapunzel's parents at the start of her story, he's just kind of sets the stage and and then he's out. Exits, right.
1: So we have this young girl looking at this pile of straw and knowing that she's going to get killed in the morning. And it's at this terrifying point that Rumpelstiltskin comes into the room. And he says, I will solve your problem, young lady. If you give me something precious of yours, she gives him her necklace and he spins three times. Again, we have this magic number three. And he does this three times spinning over and over again until he turns all of the straw into gold. And the way I see this symbolically is that sometimes, as we all come into this adulting, as you call it, Reza, with this sense of inadequacy to the task, we make terrible compromises. We give something precious of ourselves away to someone who promises to solve our problems and take care of us. And I think this often happens with cis women, cis men, and heterosexual partnerships. Mm. That women will give away tremendous amounts of power their partners in exchange for being taken care of. I'm going to give an example of one woman who I've worked with for many years on and off. And She is a strong, competent professional who couldn't pay a bill if her life depended on it. Mm. She has given away all of the, you know, she, she takes her, her sizable paycheck, it's deposited into account. And she has no idea what happens with it after that. And she doesn't want to. I've seen her and her husband in couples counseling, and I've said, you know, I think some of the fights that you guys would have would really be resolved if there was a more equal understanding and sharing of the power around money. And she's like, oh, no, I want him to take care of and then when he doesn't take care of it the way she wants him to, she gets angry at him. But again, it's this very child-parent kind of relationship that for the two of them has probably been going on for about 25 years now. Yeah, I remember
0: running into someone at some kind of convention. You know, I used to go around selling chain mail jewelry at anime conventions and gaming conventions, that kind of thing. And I came across a woman who said, Well, you know, I'd like to get something, but I have to go get my husband because I'm not allowed to carry credit cards at these events because she just didn't want the responsibility of keeping track of how much she was spending. So she gave that power over to her husband to determine, Okay, we're still within budget of what we can reasonably spend at this event. and. You know, I didn't say anything because good customer service, but in my head, I was just like, oh, gosh, that sounds
1: demoralizing to me. Right. How old are you? How long are you willing to remain a child? But in some respect,
0: I think I've come to understand it's kind of an addiction thing, I think, for some people with credit cards Mm -hmm. and Not everyone has the mentality that I was always, had it not literally beaten, but many times lectured into me growing up that you treat a credit card like a debit card, it's not actually what your credit limit is, right? Because you you have to pay it at the end of the month, you can't just pay the minimum, otherwise you're going to build up debt. And so I've always used my credit cards like debit cards but just ones that give you points. But when I realized that not everyone works that way and that for some people it's a legit problem, I was like, well, it's a pretty devastating thing if you let it run away with you. So if it works to give that responsibility to someone else so that you don't end up in credit card debt, yeah, it sounds bad, but it's probably worth doing.
1: And again, I think that the real question is, is it a small piece of your life that you give over to somebody else? Again, back to, well, Rasa has to do the tech for the podcast, <laughs> right? Small piece of both of our lives. Or is it the larger the piece of your life that you're giving over to somebody else, the more dangerous that becomes? And I think we'll see mm-hmm. that as our story goes on, actually, because Rumpelstiltskin's demands get larger. So we go back to our girl and her room full of now gold. And the king comes in the morning and he's thrilled by all of the gold. and He wants more, of course. And he commands the girl to turn even more straw into gold by the next morning. And again, this, if we think about it in ordinary life, The tasks just get more impossible, particularly if we avoid responsibility and give ourselves over to someone else. So if we learn how to do the various tasks of adulting, then they become more and more manageable over time. If we turn them over to someone else, they start to feel more and more impossible. And what we have to pay again, especially if it's large pieces of our adulthood, of our agency that we're turning over to somebody else, what we have to pay to our benefactor also grows. So Rumpelstiltskin appears again, and he offers to spin the straw into gold in exchange for the girl's ring. The whole process repeats again. But this time, the king says he will marry the miller's daughter if she succeeds. And this also is an example of what happens to children who grow up with narcissistic parents. It sounds like a great deal to marry the king, but he is really only marrying her for a talent that she doesn't even actually possess, not for love of her. He is marrying her for what she produces, not for who she is. And one of the outcomes that often arises when a child has a narcissistic parent is that child may grow a strong persona, a strong kind of front between themselves and the outside world. And then they may end up actually identifying with the persona. And that's a a very Jungian kind of a phrase, identifying with persona. Persona is the part of psyche that mediates and protects our tender, vulnerable, true self and the outside world. And we put the parts of ourselves that are valued by our parents, our teachers, our peers, the collective culture as a whole, into our persona, right? So if we grow up in a family that values academic achievement like mine, we're liable to put the student part of ourselves into our persona. That's fine, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But when we identify with our persona, when we believe that we really are the doctor, the rock star, the good wife, the good mother, et cetera, then we become unable to see ourselves in our own complexity. And we abandon some of the most vulnerable and some of the most important parts of ourselves to be the doctor, the good mother, the the rock star, whatever it is that's in our persona. We abandon all of the other parts of ourselves.
0: So what then is our daughter's persona
1: here. So her persona here is this person who can do magic. Hmm. And in doing magic can make the king rich. And in fact, her persona is particularly problematic because it has nothing to do with her at all. It's really a completely false front that she has created. And that is what the king is marrying is this false persona that the miller's daughter has now in order to save her own life but nonetheless has created yeah i think it's
0: interesting as well that you know you say she has to give up something precious each time it's not explicitly said that her necklace or ring are sentimental but i feel like that's something that has to be implied because it can't be for their value their their monetary value if, if rumble stiltskin's literally st- Spinning straw into gold. That's not an issue. Yes. But if you are giving up these personal things, I mean, what do you have left but this persona you've built up?
1: Yeah. Well, we'll see what she has left, right? That's coming. So another way to look at Renfrew Stiltskin is intra psychically. In other words, each character in the fairy tale can be seen as representing a different part of psyche. It's like a picture of one person rather than multiple people. So the King's offer to marry the Miller's daughter can be seen as an example of what happens in identification with persona, the daughter or child aspect of psyche. As a result of growing up with the abandoning narcissistic parent, believes she is fundamentally unlovable. When parents aren't able to love us for ourselves or use us for their own needs, we don't develop the ability to see our own value. So the way that children come to see themselves as lovable is at, by being loved. And when they are not authentically loved, they have what we would call low self-esteem. Would you say that's also
0: situations where it may very well be that the parent loves them unconditionally, but they put up this front or... The way that they show it often seems as though it is conditional.
1: I think it's rare that parents really don't love their child, right? Mm -hmm. I think it is common that parents can't show that love in a way that the child experiences as being loved. Does that answer your question? I think so. For example, the parents may feel so pressured about their child's being able to succeed that they do this, what you were calling, conditional love. Well, we will only behave in a loving way when you're academically succeeding. Because we're so worried that you won't, if you don't academically succeed, that you won't succeed in life. So it's coming from a genuinely loving place, but it's being communicated in a way that the child is going to experience, they only love me when I'm producing what they want.
0: I think the stereotypical situation of this is the stern, madly father who wants to raise a tough son etc and yes he loves his son but be- because we're, we're tough men we, we don't show that and so the son thinks he has to do all these things to earn his dad's respect and love even though he is already loved but it's just that the dad won't show it because of this bravado
1: right well The dad is so worried that he won't survive in our harsh, cruel world unless he's tough and manly, right? Mm -hmm. And so what do we do about that sweet, sensitive kid? And what happens to that sweet, sensitive kid can be pretty ugly and and difficult. So the Miller's daughter has this sense of being unworthy, and she develops this false persona of being able to turn straw into gold. The king in that picture represents her own introjected sense that the world will only accept her if she can produce impossible results. So just like that sweet, sensitive boy might have an introjected sense from his father that he can only be lovable if he's tough and manly and maybe harsh or whatever, the Miller's daughter believes she can only be lovable if she can turn straw into gold. She can only be loved for what she does, she produces, not for what she is. Yeah, I feel like that
0: is very relatable. Not like to me personally, but I feel like in terms of just kind of a generational thing, maybe not with our parents, but just sort of with in this world right now, that it's just we're only useful for what we can do or produce and it has to be this very specific thing and if we can't do that it doesn't matter i think it was just sort of emphasized because of the whole follow your dreams if, if your work is what you love then you'll never work a day in your life and then that didn't work for everyone because they couldn't make a career in whatever they went to college for fiber weaving yeah
1: sure yeah, I think in some ways, this whole fairy tale could be like of particular meaning to your generation, right? I think who was so much taught that what you produce is what makes you valuable. And if you're not earning money, you're not turning straw into gold, then, then the culture doesn't value you. Yeah,
0: I actually... Maybe it does hit a little more personally than I suggested earlier. I was having a conversation with my grandmother, and I—I forget how exactly it came up, but I had mentioned that I, you know, am not as successful as my siblings because they are a, a programmer and a lawyer, respectively, and I am not making that much money. I have a part-time job, and I. Do a lot of content creation stuff. And I'm able to do that because my wife, your daughter, and and I have have worked out that we can get away with me making that much. But it's definitely a trade-off. I I have more free time. I do a lot more stuff around the house to, to make up for it. And yet I can't get away from the nagging feeling of being a failure because I I'm not making that much money. And I think for a very long time, especially while she was in rabbinical school, we were in Philadelphia, and I felt like I really should have been able to, in that time, get a full-time job with insurance and everything. And I didn't. And it just, it felt like this glaring failure and, and, Sometimes I would get really depressed because I was evaluating my worth solely on how much money I would be able to bring in.
1: So it may be that this is a really important fairy tale for your generation, but I also think it's a really important fairy tale for artists and for people who are creative. Yeah. Because our culture does not monetarily remunerate creatively. And in order to be a creative person, you have to separate the worth of your work from what it's getting paid and, and, and your own worth, right, from what you are getting paid. All right. So we're now at the third night of the Miller's daughter living in the castle. And again, we have this magical number three. <laughs> One day we really need to, to talk about that. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, And the miller's daughter is left in a room overnight to spin straw into gold. And again, Rumpelstiltskin appears. But this time he really ups the ante. He says he will only spin the straw into gold if she gives up her first child. So we've now moved from you will give me a precious object to you will give me a precious human being. And the miller's daughter agrees. At this point in the story, it appears that the narcissistic Miller has created a narcissistic daughter who will be, in turn, willing to sacrifice her own child for her own needs. So the Miller was willing to sacrifice his child for his needs, and she's going to repeat that generational pattern. This is a common pattern in families. When our needs from childhood don't get met by our parents, we may unconsciously look to our children to meet our needs. For example, many people have the sense that they will have a child so that that child will truly love them. I will have a baby and the baby will love me. Of course, in reality, for many years, the parent mostly gives love to the child uh, while the child's job is to primarily receive love.
0: Yeah, I think it's very common for people to kind of jokingly, but kind of not say, oh, well, you know, my kid will look after me when I'm old, that kind of thing.
1: Right. And I think even more commonly, people have the sense of when I have a child, I will truly be loved mm. without realizing that really what's going to happen is when you have a child, your job will be to truly love someone else. So this generational transmission of narcissistic parenting can be seen I think, in its ugliest form in generational sexual abuse. A child is used sexually by a parent who is unable to see that child as anything other than an object, an object whose job it is to gratify the parent. And a small minority, and I really want to stress that it is a small minority of children who grow up with sexual abuse go on to abuse children themselves. Most people who are sexually abused as kids do not they never they would never do that to another child but a small minority do and most perpetrators are people who've been abused so we think we're about to see this kind of a generational pattern in the story
0: yeah and i actually encountered someone and i will say a bit of a, a trigger warning for this it is a sort of abuse story this woman when she was a child had a friend of her family, so someone that they trusted, looked after her sometimes as a babysitter. It started with like tickling, and then it became tickling with clothes off and progressed. And at particularly a young age, you know, very traumatizing, damaging, you don't even know what's really going on. you can't process it. And then this person as an adult was looking to do that to other people. And I said, you really need to get help. Like you need to see someone about because you can't do that. And that was kind of my first biggest scare of like, oh, gosh, this stuff is real. This isn't just mm. a CSI episode, you know, some TV thing, right? I feel like we know about these kinds of stories in the abstract, many of us. For whom it hasn't hit close to home. But that was really scary and eye opening for me to, to come in contact with this person. I do want to mention to backtrack a, a little bit that, you know, we say that it seems the Miller's daughter has become narcissistic like her father, but it is a bit of a false choice when your options are okay, so I can make this deal, or I can die. <laughs> like, I can trade this thing that might not happen. I think even in the story it says, who, who knows if that will happen, that, that she thinks that.
1: Right. Her unborn child is not real to her. Right. She's not even pregnant yet. She's not even married to the king yet, right? So
0: he's just looking out. I mean, narcissistic, yes, but... You don't get to have the child at all if you're going to die. So it's a bit of a non-choice to, to say, oh, it's so horrible. She's willing to give up her firstborn child.
1: Yes, and it appears that she is. So let's see what happens. Um, so our, so the story continues with the king marrying the Miller's daughter, She becomes a queen. She has her own daughter. And interestingly, she forgets all about her promise. But Rumpelstiltskin has not forgotten. Rumpelstiltskin never forgets a deal. And he comes to take the child. And at this point, we see a very unexpected twist. The queen doesn't just go, oh, okay, here you go, Rumpelstiltskin. Here's the kid in the way that her father just said, "Okay, here's my daughter. Here you go. No. She says, oh, no, I cannot give you this actual child, no longer a hypothetical child, but a real child that I love. I will give you all of my riches. I will give you all of my persona if you don't take the baby. And I actually think this is also another pattern that's very common. When people have a child, they transcend their limitations. They grow into new and unforeseeable capacities. So suddenly, the Miller's daughter is willing to give up all her wealth, all of her persona attributes to save her child. She shows a capacity for sacrifice and for care of another that had never been shown to her. No idea where she would have found this, oh no, I cannot give up my beautiful, precious child, because the only thing that had ever been shown to her is, oh, sure, I can give up my beautiful, precious child. No problem. I see this over and over again. My analysands, people who work with me, who are abused, used, and neglected, have a child. And from some numinous, deep place, they suddenly have a capacity to care for the child. These new parents grow the ability to sacrifice their own needs and desires act in the best interests of their child. And these new parents somehow do this, even though it was never done for them. To me, this is an example of one of the most beautiful and kind faces of the archetypal layer of psyche. We have potentials and capacities that no one taught us. They're just mysteriously there. Of course, we have to choose over and over and over again to embody these potentials. That's our human choice. But the potential is just there. So, for example, we have to work on being good and loving parents. But even if we didn't have good and loving parents ourselves, the archetypal potential is there. And the word that I use to describe this phenomena is grace.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to reiterate what you mentioned earlier, that only a a very small minority of, you know, those who are abused actually become abusers themselves. And yeah, much is said about the capacity for human evil and not enough, I think, sometimes about the capacity for human goodness and that kind of miraculous thing that you go from worrying about yourself to you have a kid and now you have to care for all of their needs. And we just time and time again make that happen. We
1: just do it. Just unconditionally love this tiny human. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So from that same mysterious source, the queen's capacity for sacrifice triggers some capacity for empathy in Stiltskin. He says, okay, I will let you keep your baby if you can guess my name. So instead of keeping strictly to his bargain letter for letter, he offers the queen a way out. It seems like an impossible way out, but a way out. The queen tries everything to figure out his name for two days. She racks her brain with no luck. She sends messengers throughout the kingdom. No luck. We can see this as an example of what happens when we're stuck in life and we bring all of our conscious efforts to a problem. The queen has brought all of her conscious, everything she knows to do to this problem of figuring out Rumpelstiltskin's name. So we do everything we know how to do, and it's still not enough. Jung says this is necessary. We must try our best, even if it fails over and over again, in order to lay the ground for something new from the unconscious to enter. This trying and failing is actually a necessary step. So to return to the story, on the third day, the messenger comes. We can see the messenger as another symbol for an aspect of psyche. The messenger in psyche carries knowledge from our unconscious to our conscious. These messages may be in the form of dreams. They may be, they sometimes come in the form of of painful psychological symptoms. They sometimes come as synchronicities. If we can learn to listen carefully, The messenger part of Psyche is bringing us information that we need. I think something you
0: mentioned to me before was that, for example, in Greek mythology, the messenger is both the trickster and messenger Hermes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a little different. But in every story, tricksters are not strictly evil. I think it's very common that you know, they have empathy and they they don't want people to hate them, right? They can't help themselves to continue the game because it's always a game playing with people. And there is this tendency towards arrogance and assuming they'll still be the winner in the
1: end. As we saw in in Once Upon a Time, the show that you and I watched together, right? Rumplestiltskin always thought... If I just play this game out to the end, Uh I'm going to figure out some sneaky, tricky way to win. Sometimes he did, and sometimes he didn't. But he always thought he would. In our story, the messenger brings exactly what the queen needs. He travels through the kingdom, and he finds no new names. But eventually, and I just love this line, comes to a high mountain, at the end of the forest, where the fox and the hare bid each other good night. In other words, the messenger aspect of Psyche has stopped searching in normal, egoic, conscious world. He stopped searching where ordinary reality rules. And he's entered into the wild unknown, where everything is possible. Even foxes and hares peacefully saying good night. Everything that we think we know can be overturned in this place in the depths of the unconscious, and it is in this place that, in our moments of deepest desperation, that the knowledge that we need can be found. So then the messenger comes to this high mountain at the end of the forest and sees Rumpelstiltskin dancing around a fire and saying his name out loud. When Rumpelstiltskin comes to take the child teases him by guessing his name wrong twice and the third try she says his real name and Rumplestiltskin is so angry he tears himself in two. Yeah and I think this is honestly
0: a sort of darkly comical scene. I mean he stamps his foot so hard that it gets stuck in the ground and then in trying to pull himself out he tears himself in two. I mean it's really a, a Grizzly but ridiculous image and with how much we love rumpelstiltskin in once upon a time it's it's really a sort of disappointing end and, and waste of a good character again it's pure arrogance because if he just didn't speak for three days he he wins for sure i mean the whole thing is that the name is absurd and how are you ever going to guess that like, it's not a normal person name and he's in this one story when he's just such a a pivotal character for, for you know, the series we know. Whereas it, it seems like if you look at the titles of a bunch of the Grimm tales that maybe it's not the same Hans, but it feels like Hans shows up a lot. There's a lot of Hanses. Yeah, there's a lot of Hans. There's a lot of Gretel. I mean, I, it was probably just a generic name, but could be the same character
1: going from child to adult. Yeah, I also was like that's a that's a foolish way for a trickster character to end, right? Trickster characters notoriously come back to trick again and again and again and to change everybody else's story. That's their job, right? But we that is our next episode is the trickster aspect of this fairy tale. So so I think what happens with the Miller's daughter here is an example of how when we really work with, struggle with, and come to know a complex, an ingrained pattern in psyche. In this case, it's the complex of being driven to sacrifice our own children. When we really struggle with it, sometimes this deep understanding, which is often nonverbal, kind of a felt sense appears and the complex may evaporate or may lose some of its power. And we are more free. We have more choice over our own lives and how we treat others. I think that's a great tone to end on. All right. Well, very fun working on Rumplestiltskin with you, Rasa. Thank you. And- yeah. We got to watch more once upon a time. We never finish. We do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, well, that concludes this episode. Our intro-outro music is a sample of Spring Movement 1 Allegro from The Four Seasons, composed by Antonio Vivaldi and performed by John Harrison and the Wichita State University Players. You can find the full version at freemusicarchive.org, link in the show notes. If you like what you've been hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast feed of choice. It really helps other people find the show. The show will always be free and available to all, but if you would like to monetarily support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Jungianeverafter. Also, Dr. Adina Davidson is a certified Jungian analyst who offers telesessions. You can find out more about her practice at adinadavidson.com or her Psychology Today profile. We'll be with you again next month, but until then, we hope your month is filled with exploring the worlds of imagination and storytelling.